Good evening. It's good seeing you all. Um, if you would, uh, turn in your Bibles to uh, 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. And I'm going to do something that I don't normally do when preaching, and that is I'm going to read the entire chapter before I preach on it. So I don't anticipate being able to speak to everything that is written in this chapter, but I want at least you all to know what's in the chapter. Uh, this week and next, we're going to be finishing up the book of Second Peter. Um, I don't know if I'll read Second Peter 3 next week, but I definitely want to read Second Peter 2 for you this week. So if you'd follow along, Second Peter chapter 2, in verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he, bought, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority." Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime, their stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions, and they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. These are springs without water and mists driven by storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better, or it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having knowing it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. Lord, this is one of the strongest stated passages of Scripture on false teachers that there is in the New Testament. Protect us from becoming them. Protect us from them. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. There are many passages of Scripture that are read at weddings. This is not one of them. <laughs> so... There are many passages read at funerals, and this is not one of them. There are many life verses that people have, verses that they look to 
that say, you know what, this is my life verse. I don't know of too many that quote from 2 Peter 2 when giving their life verse. For the past two years, my wife and I have noticed something in our backyard. And I actually have video proof if you really want it. The last two years, we have noticed around this time of year that we have a family of foxes. We have uh, two adult foxes that have dug a den, probably about, oh, a couple hundred feet from our, back, from, the, from our house. And each year in the springtime, they have these little pups. Uh, and this is the second year that these pups have, have come out. And they are the most adorable thing in the world. I mean, these pups are like romping all over each other, and they're, you know, they're climbing all over, and, and they have these pointy little ears, and they have this pointed little snout, and they are the cutest thing. Like I said, I have video evidence. My wife sent it to me while I was, at, uh, while I was here a couple weeks ago, and she's like, oh, they're just romping around in the backyard. And they are so, so adorable. Can I also tell you what's in our backyard? We have a chicken coop. That den where the foxes live is no more than about 50 to 75 feet away from our chicken coop. And last year, we lost about five chickens to our good friends, the foxes. Um, you say, what does that have to do with what we just read? Well, in John chapter 21, when Peter is on the shore along with the other disciples, and you remember the story where you know, it's after Christ has been resurrected and Christ is there with the disciples. They've just had this huge haul of fish. And he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I do. And he says, tend my sheep. Not just once, but he says it three times. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. In 2 Peter chapter 2, we have Peter tending the sheep, much like I tend to my chickens. Not identical, but I will say this. I will do everything within my ability, and I will step all the way up to the boundary of the law. In fact, I will peer over the boundary of the law in order for me to protect my chickens. I'm not going to be nice to those foxes. I'm not going to domesticate them. I have no desire for them to share their cuteness with me. In fact, I find it quite intriguing that they would build a den right near a chicken coop. I mean, of all the places you know, for them to build a den, why there? Oh, I can't imagine. The thing is, those cute little pups grow up into adult foxes, don't they? And what Peter is doing here in 2 Peter chapter 2 is he is warning a congregation of what may look really attractive but will ultimately bring about destruction for them and for those teachers. Like I said in my prayer, this chapter is perhaps one of the most sternly read, sternly written chapters in all of the New Testament, especially as it relates to false teachers. Other than Jesus Christ and his words to the Pharisees, we really don't have stronger language. And, and you have this one big run-on sentence in the middle of the chapter where you can almost see Peter, if you didn't know better, foaming at the mouth. Like, did he just wake up, you know, having a bad day? I mean, is he really this frothing mad? But no, he is tending Christ's sheep. And he is having those sheep be ready for what may be to come. He shouldn't be expected to be nice. And that's how we need to approach 2 Peter chapter 2. His tone is stern, his language is hard, and his message cannot be mistaken. So what I want to leave with you today, if you have a program, it's, it's stated as much in there. By having a true knowledge of God, that's that theme that runs through 2 Peter. By having a true knowledge of God, you can recognize a false teacher and avoid becoming one yourself. Let me say that again. By having a true knowledge of God, you can recognize a false teacher and avoid becoming one yourself. So what I want to do here is I want to talk about 
really two different groups of people, false teachers and the righteous. And really, we look at verses 9 and then the first part of 10 to help govern how we're going to look at this chapter. Look at verse 9. The statement is this, the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly, I'm sorry, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. So what I want to do first of all, because the majority of this chapter is about false teachers, I want to look at these false teachers. First of all, I want to identify what their characteristics are. And I want to show you what their impact is. And then I'm going to show you what their judgment is going to be. So first of all, identifying these false teachers. First characteristic that I want to bring out to you is the fact that they despise authority while acting as an authority. They despise authority while acting as authority. Now, before I go any further, I should have said this. When we look at the characteristics of false teachers in 2 Peter chapter 2, we have to make a concession. All false teachers have some of the characteristics that are in this passage. All of them have some of them. And some false teachers have all of the characteristics mentioned in this passage. But it's possible that not all false teachers have all of the characteristics. And the reason why I bring that out is because as Peter goes through here, I don't know if you notice or not, but he doesn't name names. Peter doesn't say, hey guys, look out for this person. He doesn't name, say, like a Diotrephes. He doesn't name Demetrius, like Paul did. Why? Because Peter was concerned not so much about who the specific individuals were like, or were, but rather what they would be like so that if and when they came, they would be readily identified, okay? So it's important to understand that. So when I say, first of all, that they despise authority while acting as authority, we see this in the middle of verse 10. Look in the middle of verse 10, where it says daring. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord, but these, like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. Now I say that they despise authority while acting as an authority. They despise, first of all, spirit authorities. Spirit authorities. And this is kind of really an odd way of describing false teachers because looking at it from the 21st century viewpoint, it's hard to understand what Peter is talking about in verse 10 and even in verse 11, where he says they revile angelic majesties. That word for angelic majesties can also be interpreted messengers. And so some commentators, when kind of wrestling with this passage, they want to understand it as they're just reviling preachers, messengers of the gospel. But then you see in verse 11, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. So what is he talking about? I don't exactly know. What I do know is that they esteemed themselves higher and more authoritative than even angels in heaven esteemed other angels. What I mean by this is they had an estimation of themselves that was greater than what it should have been. They despised authority while acting as an authority. It describes them as daring and self-willed. The false teacher is not afraid to go against the grain in the face of what's right. We don't have time to look at it, but the book of Jude, that little book of Jude, has a parallel passage to this. And I'd encourage you to read verses 4 through 16. It's almost word for word where you have these false teachers reviling angels and angelic majesties. Even Michael the archangel doesn't go as far as these false teachers do in their rebuke. But not only do they despise spirit authorities. They despise spiritual authorities. 
They despise spiritual authorities. Look at verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. Among you. Look at verse 15. It says they are forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. Look at verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled them and overcome. These despisers of spiritual authorities are defectors. Peter is saying, watch out for them because in all likelihood they will come from among you. It's not just out there, it's in here. And you know, when you think of what a false teacher looks like, they don't come in with a big scarlet F. They don't come in like, okay, so it's Easter time, and when you turn on TV, you see, you know, movies about Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the greatest story ever told. And every time they show Judas, he always has this scowl on his face. And I'm thinking, if I were one of the disciples, I would know it's him. Because he always has a stern look on his face. Or he's walking off separately from the other 11 disciples. They're just loving being with Jesus. And there's Judas. He's pouting. That's not what a false teacher looks like. And I think at some level, we kind of expect it to be that way. You know what a false teacher looks like? A false teacher in this circumstance, at some point, is going to look like someone who walks in carrying their Bible. A false teacher is going to be someone who's going to agree with much of what's going on, even much of what's being preached, at least at the outset. In a membership interview, the elders are going to be really excited about having someone so intelligent about the word be part of their church. False teachers are great disciples. They are. When it says in verse 2, many will follow their sensuality. You know, you scratch your head and you think, how in the world could many do that? Well, it makes perfect sense when they're part of the system, when they're part of the family. Yet they despise spiritual authority. Can I tell you, and, and I've, I've really appreciated those of you who've testified to the benefit of studying God's word. And in particular, here at Grace, we have the Foundations book. I'm really thankful for those who, when you've come here to Grace Church, and maybe you've come after having been saved for a number of years, and you assimilate to, to Grace Church, and perhaps you desire to become a member, and you start to go through the Foundations book, and you know you know that content. It's not a matter of data, but it is a matter of being assured of core doctrine and taking the time to study through what God's Word says about the fundamental aspects of our faith, like salvation, like assurance of salvation, like repentance and forgiveness, like about baptism and communion. And to take the time to go through that. Because at some level, that's a safeguard. It's not a foolproof safeguard, but it is a safeguard for the sheep in this congregation. So that false teachers don't creep in unawares. Okay? So they despise authority while acting as an authority. Second of all, false teachers indulge their fleshly desires. This passage describes them in two different ways. They are sensual. In verse 13, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery. They never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, 
having a heart trained in greed. We'll get to that. They are sensual. Their brazen nature, their boldness of sin extends to sensuality as well. This description this, that they, they counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime, it fits in with that daring description back in verse 10, that they're daring. And the depth of their sensuality affected their ministry so much that it says that their eyes are full of adultery that never cease from sin. This could be physical adultery. This could be spiritual adultery. I find it that in here, I, I, I conclude with those that would say this is, this is adultery. This is what we would describe. That to that false teacher, their congregation, their people who they lead or they get to follow them are viewed through the eyes of basically being a sex object or they're evaluated as a potential sex partner. So they are sensual. And then second of all, they are greedy. They are greedy. Look at verse 14. They have a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way they've gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor. This phrase, having their hearts trained in greed, this word for greed can also be covetousness, which it includes more than just a desire for monetary gain. To be sure, they're experts at teaching for profit. They're professionals at accumulating all sorts of gain, money, prestige, honor. They wanted that level of wealth through the people that they were leading. And they wanted to get wealthy from their service. Like Balaam, they were willing to be bought. Now, when you look at sensuality and you look at greed, we understand these as sins, but we also understand these as natural desires. And there's something about money and there's something about sex that we all want. And there's something really good about money, and there's something really good about sex. I mean, the Bible describes both as good, but this is a perversion of them. And the lifestyle of the false teacher enables that part of those who would follow him to be able to indulge in a way that they know isn't right, but yet still allows for them to enjoy it. Enjoy it outside of the bounds. Okay? So what is their impact what is their impact? Well, these false teachers seduce many. Like I said before, many will follow their sensuality. Verses 17 through 19, it talks about those the speaking out. I'm sorry, verse 17, there's springs without water, mists driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved for speaking out arrogant words of vanity. They entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality. Those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. What they're promising is a level of freedom. It's Christianity without the cost. It's salvation without any strings attached. And as a result, the way of the gospel is brought into disrepute. Verse 2, going back to verse 2, it says, because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. A couple weeks ago, there's an article in the New York Times. The title of the article is, let he who is out, who, I'm sorry, let he who is without Yeezys cast the first stone. Do you know what a Yeezy is or Yeezys are? They're really, really expensive shoes. In this article, was about a man who started an Instagram page on pastors and sneakers. Should pastors wear $5,000 sneakers? There's been soul searching recently over materialism in houses of worship. The article starts this way. Carl Lentz, the pastor who baptized Justin Bieber in a professional basketball player's bathtub, appeared wearing a pair of Nike Air Fear of God sneakers that were selling online for about $500. Then John Gray, a pastor from South Carolina, was shown in Blood Red Air Yeezy 2s, the sneakers made in collaboration with Kanye West that were going for upwards of $5,000. In another photo, Chad Veach, who preached in Los Angeles, had a $1,900 Gucci bag and wore $795 pants. The pastors were among those included on an Instagram account that recently popped up called Preachers and Sneakers, where men and women of God were shown wearing footwear that could cost more than a month's rent for many of their followers. Before long, each post was clogged with hundreds of comments. As the Instagram page became popular, quickly amassing well over 100,000 followers, 
since it first appeared about a month ago, the photos have led to a soul-searching over what some see as an undercurrent of materialism that has been getting uncomfortable attention. The exchange has grown beyond simply criticizing the pastors, as many young Christians were nudged to wrestle how they present themselves to the world and how it squares with the faith's teaching. Now, I don't put a whole lot of stock in the comment section of online articles. Sometimes they're fun to read, but you usually don't go to the comment section of an article online for fountains of wisdom, okay? <laughs> However, in reading of how the New York Times was portraying these particular men of God and their clothing choices, in particular, the exorbitant cost of their clothing, I found it interesting what many of the New York Times readers presented. I'm going to read just a sample of it. One person said this, this is an aspect of a larger issue. There are preachers who are getting filthy rich from being pastors and sporting their wealth with extremely expensive sport cars and huge estates along with $5,000 shoes. Churchgoers have every right to be concerned that their pastor is sporting a materialistic lifestyle. If you're giving to the church and your pastor is wearing $5,000 sneakers, it makes you wonder where the money is actually going, even if they do have a multi-million dollar TV deal, and where their pastor's money is going. Are they too supporting the church, or are they supporting themselves? Although none of this is new, this is the kind of behavior Martin Luther fought against. I seem to remember a simple desert carpenter, one other person says, who stated it would be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter to heaven. It seems too many Christians today have forgotten that quote. Another person says this, I wonder what gospel these self-appointed pastors are reading. Certainly not the one I'm reading. Or, in this or is this a case of religious leaders being uncritically assimilated into the darker values of American culture? You know, get rich, live in the high life, while many of their congregants can't make ends meet? Jesus did have a lot to say about that and religious leaders who ignore the poor. One person says this, These are grown people, he added, referring to the pastors. They have the right to spend their money in a way they're comfortable with. No, not when they're tax-exempt. And it goes on. This is 2 Peter 2.2 in real life, where the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you want to call it that, the way of truth is being maligned. For everyone to see. They are sensual. They are greedy. They seduce many. They bring the gospel into disrepute. But this chapter and chapter 3 discuss their judgment. In fact, there are three examples of judgment that one should look to in light of these particular false teachers or false prophets. In verse 5, I'm sorry, in verse 4 it says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, example 1. And he did not spare the ancient world, example 2. In verse 6, And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 3, then you can be assured, verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who indulge its flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Verse 21, it would have been better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. Their judgment follows a pattern of previous Judgment. Next week, we're going to be talking more about this. And so I'm not going to spend a, a lot of time this evening just because I want to get to those who are rescued, the righteous who are rescued. But in light of this, it should give us pause. And honestly, at some level, it should give us comfort to know that something that is so laughable to our society is really a big deal to God. And that is inevitable judgment. I mean, you want to get someone to just completely doubt or you want to get someone to, to, to just kind of think you're off your rocker, talk about eventual judgment. I mean, talk about the sense of where God, who allowed his son to come to earth, be born in a manger, really soft and cuddly, or farm animals, 
allowed his son to come do great deeds, be very loving, heal the sick, help the poor. The son who would sacrifice himself, who would give his life for sinners, who would raise from the dead, which we just celebrated, all of that is the same son who in Revelation chapter 19 is going to come on a horse in a robe dipped in blood and execute judgment on this earth. And we like, I say we, society likes the warm and fuzzy Jesus. They like the Christmas Jesus. They like the Easter Jesus. They do not like the God of judgment. It's laughable. Because why? Because it all is going to work out in the end. Right? I mean, God knows. And with these false teachers, everything's going great. Right? In fact, verse, uh, in chapter 3, they consider it foolish for these believers to say, no, 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 no. Christ is coming. For them, where is he? Because honestly, it's going pretty good right now. And when we read New York Times articles like this, and we look at them and we think, how can God allow this to go on in his name? And for them, it's going on. So that being said, we'll get to that more next week. But for now, let's move on to a discussed group in chapter 2 and a really important point of consideration, and that is the rescued righteous. So we had the false teachers, but now we have the rescued righteous. The rescued righteous, verse 9, that's where I get this term. For the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly from temptation. What is this that he's talking about? Is he simply talking about rescuing them from judgment? Is that what he's talking about? Well, when we look at Noah... In verse 5, it says, God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others. And then we also see Lot, in verse 7, who is also rescued. We see some pretty lonely individuals. Lonely from the standpoint that they were the spiritual minority in a very carnal majority. What I believe is being said here is that these individuals, the righteous, who are being rescued, they are being rescued in verse 9 from temptation. Temptation for what? Well, really, that word temptation is the same word that you see in James chapter 1 and verse 2. Count it all joy, brothers, when you are tempted or you come about, there are diverse temptations or trials. The difficulties, frankly, that come, from a, that come from being a Christian. These were Christians who were facing suffering and persecution for their faith. I'd like you to just go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, okay? Because I want to trace a theme here. It's a really, really important theme that we can't forget about in 2 Peter. So Peter writes two letters. But there's a really important theme that we should trace here. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6. And I'm going to read several verses here, so make sure your fingers are nimble and your ears are quick. Okay, Verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Okay? Now turn over to chapter 2. Look at verses 19 and 20. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated you endure it with patience? But if you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure, this finds favor with God. Look down there at chapter 3 and verse 1. 
Suffering for righteousness can even look like a domestically uh, different situation. Verse 1, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without the word, by without a word, by the behavior of their wives. Okay, so some of them were experiencing difficulty because they were in spiritually mixed marriages. One had been saved, the other was unsaved. It was experiencing difficulty. Look at verse 14 of the same chapter. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. Look at verse 17. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than doing what is wrong. Look at chapter 4. Verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Look at verse 4. In all this, your unbelieving friends are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation or drunkenness, and they malign you. Look at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory in God rests on you. Verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And then look at chapter 5 and verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Why read all these verses, Pastor Mike? Because the fact is, is that these false teachers, themselves once identifying as fellow saints, were appealing to something that everybody wanted. Money, comfort, freedom from restraint, basically a faith that gives them what they want and doesn't cost them anything. Yet difficulty for Christ's sake is a greater theme, not only of 1 Peter, but also the message of the gospel. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 35. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It is attractive when people that you know who are very influential in your life, who have a knowledge of the Bible but are slightly disordering it, but you have that really fun relationship with them, are peddling now a gospel that frees you from the demands of the gospel. And then when you see others becoming more attracted to it, there's a great temptation towards that. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. The temptation is similar to what Lot and Noah experienced, being a righteous minority in a very worldly majority. Not only that, being tempted even within the body of Christ when the tendency for the church to look, when the tendency is for the church to look the same as the world around us. We are rescued from a tendency of our own in a trajectory that is natural when not tempered by recalling what we have been taught. When I was growing up, I went to a place with my family called Geauga Lake. You remember Geauga Lake? Okay, Geauga Lake had the double loop. That was the first big roller coaster I went on. Had the, the Raging Wolf Bobs in that back corner as a wooden roller coaster and it shook you all around. The Big Dipper, which was almost 100 years old and probably shouldn't have had people safely go on it. Then they had the rotor. Remember the rotor? 
You know, and when I went on the rotor, there was the crazy rotor guy, if you remember. There was a guy that, that was on the rotor, and people were laughing who know what I'm talking about, because there was a guy, this ride, it spun around really, really fast. And you would stick to the wall, the floor would drop, and you'd stick to the wall, and that was the fun of the ride. But there was a guy that would go on the rotor over and over and over and over and over, and over again. We called him the crazy rotor guy. And he was there almost every single time we went. That was Geauga Lake. It was like almost every single one of my dad's like company, you know, summer parties was at Geauga Lake or SeaWorld or something like that. Have you been to Geauga Lake recently? Geauga Lake is like the most depressing place on the planet. It is. I mean, the signage is still out in, in, in the, the parking lot. There's still the gates. Those of you who don't know Geauga Lake, it's a local amusement park. It's kind of like you know a JV version of Cedar Point. Um, it's it's but but it ended up getting bought by the company that owns Cedar Point, and they sold all the roller coasters, and now it's a ghost town. Literally, it's a ghost town. There's trees and weeds and everything growing up, and 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 it's just it's a terribly terribly depressing place. If you drive by there, you know there's the sentimentality. It's like oh I totally remember that and I remember that, and it's just so sad. So sad. What used to be a great destination for summer was now really just a sad, sad place. Can I tell you what would be just as depressing, if not more so? So by God's grace, we're growing out of this building. And we're planning to build down here on Atkins Road. And we're so thankful for that. And we see what God's doing in you and through you and our community. What would really, really be depressing is that after, by God's grace, you've shared the gospel with others, after we've helped others learn the Bible and study it together, after we've helped others build each other up and reproduce ourselves in others, but not be vigilant about having a true knowledge of our Lord, not being vigilant about being informed through his word, not being vigilant about having an intimate relationship with our Savior. What would be terribly sad is us setting ourselves up, kind of like Geauga Lake, Man, everyone went there. Everyone loved Geauga Lake. And now nobody's there. Not just nobody's there. It's an empty place. A place that was once vibrant, but then become a shell of what once was. How? By being corrupted from within. By being caught up, perhaps in greed. By caught up, by measuring success by the size of our building. The amount of money that we have in the bank. Perhaps the allure of a really fancy facility, nicest church in the area, really nice people, all in the comforts of a nice suburban area. How can we prevent this from happening? How can we see to it that this doesn't happen here at Grace, that we protect ourselves? I think there's two ways, and with this I close. Second Peter is instructive on how we can identify the false teacher. And I think it's really important that we look out for the most susceptible in our congregation. And if I could be more specific, we need to look out for the M&Ms who are at home much of the day, who, when they have opportunity to access gospel truth, they are accessing it on a television, and they are hearing some level of truth, but some level of error. I do a Bible study on Friday afternoons at an assisted living facility here. And I see people that come in, and honestly, they sit and watch TV most of the day because they have a hard time doing anything else. And can I tell you, the false teachers in our society, namely the prosperity gospel, prey on the elderly. We really, as a church, starting within our families, to be sure, but then those who are around us, must be careful and must help others be careful so that they're not just swallowing whatever it is they're imbibing on the television set. I can't say every single one of them is of the prosperity gospel, but the prosperity gospel is a false gospel. And it seems to be one of the most popular forms of proclaiming Jesus on our television set and in the Christian bookstore. The prosperity gospel is a false gospel. The belief that God's relationship to you is about you realizing your dreams, fueling your passion, and blessing you on this earth here and now, and all you need to do is believe and have faith, this is a false message. As we read before, it flies in the face of 1 Peter. 
It's described even in 2 Peter. And yet it is a powerful message. It's a powerful message in our globe. And it's becoming a more powerful message in our society. It's influencing politics. Where advisors, spiritual advisors, are peddlers of false gospel. We must be careful. It's influencing our athletics. Where those who are speaking of Christ are speaking, not all, but some, very much in line with a prosperity gospel. Where simply, do this, God will bless you in this life. It is also influencing entertainment. I mean, Christian movies are forbidden to not, they're forbidden to have not happy endings. Every Christian movie has a happy ending. And if we're not careful, and again, I'm not saying it's all prosperity gospel, throw it all out. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying let's be careful and make sure that we are not giving ear to those who would place an undue emphasis on success in this life and neglect true blessing in the next. As Christians, we have been called to take up a cross. And that can't be ignored. We live in a very comfortable society. Our faith doesn't cost us much, yet it costs us our lives. And we can't allow for false doctrine, for that greed and for that sensuality to creep in and us be unaware. Just because someone that we grew up with or perhaps people that we grew in affinity with are now speaking it. That's what makes the allure so great. I mean, those little foxes in my backyard, they are cute and adorable, but they grow up to be chicken killers. Is it any different within the body? When Paul calls them savage wolves in Acts chapter 20, and they don't come in, they come in from within. So we must be on guard. But then finally, we have to realize that 2 Peter is not written for them out there. Okay? As much as it is easy to look at a New York Times article or to look at a prosperity gospel preacher on TV, and it's easy to look at a book in a bookstore and just see it for what it is, 2 Peter is not written to them. 2 Peter is written to us. So this past week, there was the NFL draft. If you all follow sports, NFL draft is kind of a big deal, especially you know, those of you who like football. Remember when the Browns were really bad? I know it wasn't that long ago. Okay. Remember when the Browns were really bad? Okay. Well, I want you to think of the draft. And think of someone who is being drafted. And they're drafted for the New England Patriots, best team in football. And instead, they say, no, I want to go play for the Browns. That's insane. <laughs> now it is, and that was great. I mean, to your Browns fan, it's, it's not like that. But man, two years ago, a year ago, that would be insane. Can I tell you, this is the insanity of following a false teacher. You are signing up for a team that didn't draft you. In 2 Peter 1, verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. You were drafted. If you are in Christ, you were drafted. Why turn? And so this admonition in 2 Peter 2 is a warning to believers, even though they were standing firm. Don't. Don't follow the allure. Why play for a team that didn't draft you? I don't want to be a false teacher, and neither do you. I don't want false teachers in our midst, and neither do you. But if we are not growing in our relationship with Christ, both by being informed by his word and growing in our intimacy with him as we learn to love and obey him, what guarantees do we have that we will survive? I'm not talking about our faith surviving. I'm not even talking about the body of Christ surviving. But if you look at church history, local churches and longevity don't exactly have a sterling record. I mean, think about that. 
What is the average life? If you were to analyze church history, what is the lifespan of a local church that preaches the gospel in the last 2,000 years? It's not long. I mean, when we consider that Christ came 2,000 years ago. We want what God is doing here to outlive us. We want, actually, those who are following us to do a better job than what we're doing. And as a result, see God continue to build his church in our Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. It's incumbent on us to take the responsibility to be on guard, not just out there, but in here, too. That doesn't mean look at each other with suspicion. But it does mean knowing your Bibles. It does mean when you hear something, even from this pulpit, that that relationship with that individual, that love for one another, demands a conversation. To maintenance unity and not allow bitterness to come in. When there's question, I mean, many of you are well studied in the Bible. Many of you are discipling. Praise the Lord for that. But let's see to it that our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ is such to where we are maintenancing ourselves so that we will avoid becoming what Peter speaks out against. I pray that for you. Pray that for me. I want to finish well. I don't want to blow it. I don't think you do either. I know you don't either. Okay? Let's pray. God, thanks so much for this day. Lord, I thank you for the word that is clear I thank you for the warning that's given to a secure group of believers. Lord, Peter was assured that these saints were standing firm in the Lord. All they needed was a reminder. They had everything they needed for life and godliness. And here were false teachers that were telling them otherwise. They don't have everything they need for life and godliness. There's something better. God... Forgive us for being so easily susceptible to the allure of false teaching, of, of the greed, of the sensuality, of the, the despising of authority, of, of all of those things. God, forgive us. Protect us. May, Lord, we encourage one another as we help to teach one another, as we learn from one another. Lord, as believer priests with one another, enjoy that relationship so that we might guard what you have entrusted to us, so that we might finish well. Our children and grandchildren might finish well as well. God, may we stand firm in the faith. May we be convicted. And may you use us to preserve the spiritual integrity as I stand before this congregation, as I have the opportunity to minister to them and with them. Lord, that spiritual integrity we enjoy, may we endeavor to maintenance that, work hard at it, for your name's sake, not just for us. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. It is late, and so I need to let you go. Thank you so much for being here. I apologize for keeping you as late as I did, but it's been a blessing to share the word. Have a wonderful week.